Hello, and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this episode, we delve into the world of horror, taking a look at the classic 70s film, The Wicker Man, and talking with someone whose latest collection is currently being considered in Hollywood. What is the appeal of horror? Why has it increased in popularity during lockdown? And why do we tell stories about ghosts? In this episode, we will try to find out. And don't worry, it won't be scary. Kirsty Logan is an award-winning novelist and short story writer whose latest collection of stories is Things We Say in the Dark. Written while on a writer's retreat in Iceland, Kirsty tells us why she's turned to horror in her latest collection. Well, we're kind of here to talk about predominantly the things we say in the dark, which is your deeply troubling... <laughs> and scary um, short story collection. I read it in the Scotsman, this little piece that was there, and it was about this idea of this really intense thing to do to rip your skin off and tell people what you're really scared of. How do you translate that into the stories we see before us? I just had to spend a lot of time alone. You know, it was good to be in Iceland and be in this remote place and be able to swim. Like I love swimming. To me, swimming and walking actually are forms of meditation. And that really helped me to get in that mindset and to go inside myself. And with this book, I just kept having to ask myself, but is that really true? So every time I would think, oh, I'm afraid of this thing, I would say, is that really true? Are you actually afraid of that thing? Or are you actually afraid of the thing that comes underneath that thing? Or the thing that is hidden behind that thing? The way that my brain works is I think I like to make things external. For example, The Rental Heart, which was my first book. I wrote the title story of that book when I had been dumped. (laughs) This was a while ago when I was in my 20s, when I was dating around. And it, it hurt my heart. And I thought, I wish I could take my heart out and get another one. So I wrote a story about that. And I think with this book as well, I would try and figure out what I was really afraid of. And then I would try and externalize it in the same way. I would, I suppose the whole book is me taking my heart out and looking at it and trying to figure out the mechanics of it, trying to figure out how it ticks, how it works. So that the book is meant to be a sort of stripping away. So there's a frame story, which is about a writer called Kirsty Logan, who may or may not be me. She's on this residency in Iceland. She goes swimming a lot. She feels very lonely. She's trying to write this book. And through the book, the layers of her identity get stripped away. So it starts out stories to do with houses, fears to do with boundaries being transgressed or doors that you've tried to close, not staying closed. And then the second part of the book is all to do with fears to do with pregnancy and childbirth and everything like that. And then the third part of the book is kind of childhood fears or very basic primal fears, which I think were my fears that lay beneath all the other fears were, were these ones. So it's a, it's meant to be a sort of stripping away of identity, I suppose. And it's very intimate. Sometimes I do think, I don't know why I decided to do this. Hey, I'm going to just strip off all my skin and hold it out to people and say, hey, do you want to read this? A lot of the, the reviews have been so generous and lovely. And I get messages every day from people who've connected to it in various ways. So I do think, although it wasn't necessarily fun for me every day to rip off my skin and (laughs) see what was under there. I do think that meant that other people could similarly connect with it. And I think maybe if I hadn't sacrificed anything in the writing of it, then maybe people wouldn't connect with it so much. I want to ask, because you are, and you've talked about this various places, but you're, you're a huge fan of, you know, horror yourself and read it as a reader. 
I just wonder, it's something that Susie Fay said in her brilliant Guardian review of your book about the sense of a nagging lack of closure and how kind of both appealing but a, a great horror thing that you leave the reader kind of dangling and, and you know, on edge. I just wondered what the ingredients for you are. Um, I suppose as a reader, but maybe also as the writer of these particular stories and, and which ones creep you out the most and why. I love horror. I've always loved horror. I find it very cathartic and quite a soothing genre in a lot of ways because what most horror does, particularly particularly when we're talking about films, Hollywood kind of horror films, they bring you full circle. They give you the horror. They have the main character, who is often a final girl. She confronts the horror. She defeats the horror, maybe only temporarily, but she defeats it. And then, you know, at the end, she escapes the haunted house or the police come and rescue her or the ambulance comes or, you know, somebody comes and then we've come full circle. I love that. I find it very soothing. I think there's a good reason that apparently horror films have become very popular right now in this year of coronavirus. And it might seem strange. You might think, well, surely people want to be soothed. People want nice stories, gentle stories, uplifting stories. But to me, horror is uplifting. Horror is soothing because it shows us the terrible thing, but it also shows us how we can confront it. And sometimes it shows us how we can defeat it. However, the horror that really stays with me and the horror that I believe to be possibly the truest is the one that doesn't bring you full circle. So sometimes you'll get a horror story and you see this a lot in Shirley Jackson short stories. You see it a lot more in short stories actually than in novels and feature films, which is a good reason. You know, you don't want to spend two hours or 300 pages with someone only for it to be sort of not bring you full circle, but it does happen. Those are the ones that stay with me, the ones that sort of show you the horror, but then leave you, leave you in it, leave you to confront the horror. They don't show you how to get past it. They don't show you how to move on from it. And I don't believe that we should only read those kinds of stories because I think it's really psychologically important for us to read the stories that take us full circle, that show us how to get out of the difficult place and how to to find some hope or to find something beyond that. But I suppose that was my own horror. Maybe that was me just writing my own horror is that I fear that I'll go into that place, that deep underground shadowy place, the bottom of the sea or the cave that has no exit and won't be able to get out again. So I suppose with a lot of the stories, that is what happens. I just present the thing and I don't bring it full circle. You don't get to come back out again. And actually, I won't give away what happens, but in the very last story, which is one of the most realistic stories, a lot of the stories are very surreal. They use these kind of surreal ideas. So for example, I wanted to write a story about somebody who, the the emotion that I wanted to get out, the, the fear was this fear that with your partner, no matter how much you love them, no matter how much you give, and give and give of yourself, it will never be enough because perhaps you're not enough. And I don't believe that to be true of anyone, but I believe that it's a fear. I think it's a fear that many people have. It's certainly a fear that I have. And so I wrote a story where someone removes parts of their body. So they have a tooth removed and then they carve it into a little house and then they pull some of their hair out and they make that into a little house. And these houses are so meager, so small that they don't work. And so in the end, they give their whole body to create something for their partner and it's still not enough. That's obviously not a realistic story. You can't do that. But then the last story in the book, I wanted it to just be the true horror of there's no, there's nothing surreal. There's nothing fantastical. It's just a story of a terrible thing that happens and you think it's come full circle and you think that it's showing you how to confront the horror and how to escape from it, but it's not. It's a circle and you go round and around and you go right back to the start again. So I know that's not the reading experience that everybody wishes to have, but to me, <laughs> it was a way of confronting fear. 
You mentioned Kirsty um, Shirley Jackson, and your name's often, you know, kind of bandied around with, you know, Michelle Faber and Angela Carter. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the writers that have been an active inspiration to you or the ones that set you on the path that you're on in, in horror or, or otherwise. Those names are wild, aren't they? I never dreamed that I'd be mentioned in the same breath as any of those names. Obviously, massive fans of all of those amazing writers. Um, I'm really inspired by a lot of writers of short fiction. So people like Lindsay Hunter, Amelia Gray. I just read a, a new, well, she's quite new, writer called Laura Morrow. She's great as well. So lots of young female short fiction writers, really, really influential. Actually, one of the biggest influences on this book, and I think on me as a writer in general, is uh, children's horror. So I love, I, as a kid, you know, I was a spooky kid. I loved, as a morbid little child, I loved horror stories. I loved ghost stories, everything like that. I was a big Joan Aiken fan. I think she's really underrated. She wrote a book that I loved as a kid that's called The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. But she also writes a lot of short stories, which are very strange and beautiful and dark. And I think she's she's due a, a resurgence, I think. And a lot of fiction that I read as a kid stayed with me a lot more than a lot of the popular adult fiction that was around in the, the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, because it was very gory. It was A lot of it was quite violent. It was maybe sexual type violence, which wasn't really something that I found stayed with me. Like it sort of shocked me in the moment, but it didn't stay with me in the same way. Whereas the thing about this, the horror stories for children is that they couldn't rely on gore or violence. To me, that actually made them more horrifying because they had to suggest they had to cut away just before the horrible thing happened. Again, not come full circle. You suggest the thing and then you end because a reader's imagination is a lot scarier than anything that you can describe. So the more that you can suggest and let the reader fill it in, the better. And that kind of moves me along to um, a very burning question, just about the fact that this book has been optioned by Bad Robot, no less, which is absolutely incredible. And they've, for people that are listening and, and maybe aren't aware of them as a company, they've worked on Lost and Alias, Fringe, West world. So in terms then of, of what can be done on the page and what would you know be done potentially in an adaptation, how involved would you be? What would you like to see, I suppose? Or where's that got to even to go back to the start of, mm. of that? Well, it's super early days. Like, please don't anybody be holding their breath and thinking, when is it going to be on TV? Like the vast majority of things that get optioned don't make it to the screen. But the very fact that it's even happened is incredible. Do you know, I honestly have no idea because this is not a book that would obviously translate to the screen at all. If anything does happen with this book, then you know sometimes you say things and you think, how is this my life? This is unbelievable. I had a lovely, big, long, hour-long conversation with one of the producers at Bad Robot and she was on the, you know, you always hear about LA that they've got these endless traffic jams. She, so she was in this traffic jam on her way to the office and we had this big hour-long chat just about horror and TV and what we liked. And she was the producer on The X-Files, which is like one of my all-time favorite oh, TV shows. Your dream TV? Show. Right? Goodness. So what we were chatting about the X-Files and everything, it was brilliant. And we were talking about this and she basically said the book would be more of a thematic and kind of tonal influence. Like you really couldn't take any of these stories and just translate them directly into a script. They just wouldn't work. It would be more that you would take the ideas that are in the book and produce something new. So if anything did happen with it, I would be completely hands off. Like I'm not a screenwriter. I don't know what works on TV. I love TV. I love to watch TV. I love horror on TV, but that's not my job. If anything were to happen and it went forward, I wouldn't have anything to do with it. As far as I'm concerned, I wrote the book. That was my job. I did my job. My job is finished. Whoever then picks it up next, 
it's going to be their thing. It's going to be their baby. It's going to be their script. So I have absolutely no idea what it would look like. Like the way that, that she described it to me was potentially you could use the story of the writer in this remote place, gradually losing her grip of reality. And all the other stories could come in to kind of show her mental process. So it would be very psychological type of horror. But, you know, I have absolutely no idea. I'm just, I'm just happy to have got this far with it. That's so exciting. Whatever happens, it's it's still hugely thrilling. I, I find it really reassuring because I felt for a long time that socially conscious horror or elevated horror, as it's sometimes called, is very popular right now with good reason. There's fantastic examples out there and films like Get Out are really using horror to explore ideas of race and racism. And I really feel like queer horror and feminist horror is going to be the new thing. There have been loads of really incredible feminist horror stories, but I feel like specifically queer feminist horror is going to be a new big thing. And that's how I would describe this book. So I didn't dream that this would be something that would get picked up, but I'm just so excited to think of all the queer horror that's hopefully going to be coming out. I just have loved horror for so long. And the fact that horror is being taken seriously is, I think, fantastic. To take um, the idea of queer horror in a slightly different direction, that being the direction of of the Wicker Man, um, because we're we're delighted on this episode. Your 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 um, episode stablemates are discussing the Wicker Man, and it is a very curious, and I find it a deeply troubling film. Having I've only seen it once, but I just as a little parting shot, wondered if if you had any thoughts. Kirsty on The Wicker Man. I believe you've rewatched it again quite recently. I did. I'm so excited to hear what everyone says about The Wicker Man. So one of one of my joys of lockdown, I have two main joys, well, three main joys of lockdown. Every Sunday night, me and my best mate, Sarah, we watch Buffy and we talk about it on WhatsApp. Every week I talk to my great aunt Edith on FaceTime. And every week there is a Logan family film club, <laughs> which is me and my mum and my brother. And every week one of us picks a film, we all watch the film and then we talk about the film. Mama Logan picked The Wicker Man. I had seen it, but years and years ago, and it was so much stranger than I remembered. And again, you know, we were talking about bringing horror, bringing things full circle. That film does not bring it full circle. It brings it to the point of horror, and then it just makes you sit there. It makes you sit in the moment of horror and just experience it. And yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's such a good film. And some parts of it seem so dated, but that sort of works for it because it's it's so out of time and so out of place. And I just think that's why it's such a classic because it, its strangeness works for it. My final question, Kirsty, just, you know, the, the idea of um, the last book being something you had to write, things you had to say in the dark and otherwise. What now are you finding yourself having to say? What are you working on? Oh, well, so I'm getting a lot darker with my writing. I've discovered now that I've opened the door to saying things in the dark apparently that's where I need to live now so I've just finished a novel which will be probably a long time coming because it needs a lot of work uh, and that is a book that's sort of loosely medieval set and it's all about witches and it's about female power it's about finding your power in strange and difficult places I'll say but hopefully to come before that is actually what a few things I'm working on now um, I'm writing a 10 episode radio show for BBC radio which is all about ghosts and that is supposed to come out um, on Halloween this year but I mean we'll see who, who knows what's happening with anything but if all goes according to plan it is going to be a story across cultures and across time of all different ghosts and it's not about whether or not ghosts are real or not real it's about why do we tell stories about ghosts? Why do the stories of ghosts haunt us? What is it about ghosts that we, throughout history, 
keep returning to. Uh, and I'm also, I'm having a very audio-based and very ghostly year because I'm also currently writing an, an original audio novel for Audible, uh, which is called The Sound at the End. And that is a ghost story set in the Arctic. It's going to have a full cast and sound and everything like that. So that's been very exciting. So I'm having a very um, audio-based and spooky year. Thank you, Kirsty. Things We Say in the Dark, not for the faint of heart, but absolutely fabulous, is available now from all good independent bookshops. Continuing on the horror theme, we thought we'd feature an edited excerpt from our very special Midsummer Wigtown Wednesdays event looking at The Wicker Man. Musician, journalist and Church of England parish priest, the Reverend Richard Coles, joins comedian, writer and broadcaster Robin Ince, along with the marvellous Lee Randall. I'd like to start out with the most basic question of all and ask each of you to talk about your personal relationship with the film. When did you first see it? I had a very gothic imagination when I was going into my teens. I was 11 when The Wicker Man came out. It was talked about sort of hushed tones, like a sort of arcane ritual. And uh, I was always wanting to see it. And of course, I wasn't allowed to. I finally got to see it at Warwick Arts Centre when I was about 16, 1978. Perhaps because I was particularly receptive as a teenager, or perhaps it's the peculiar magic of the film. I remember lines of dialogue. I remember so vividly some of the scenes from it. It sort of had a haunting persistence in my life ever since. And of course, the things you love in teenagehood, maybe you fall out of love with in age, but actually, I like it even more. Yesterday, I was talking about it, and somebody who'd never seen it said, how would you describe it? And I said, satanic godspell transplanted to Gauguin's Brittany. That's perfect. I want to come back to that. But Robin, can we hear about your first interactions with Oh, you see, my first experience of Wicker Man was actually when I was eight years old. I bought horror movies by Alan Frank, the Bible for the eight-year-old who was a bit of an outsider. Of course, like many horror movie books, the thing is when you see them, what you don't realise is the pictures are not pictures from the film. They're, they're promo pictures. They're pictures that were taken on set. So my imagined version of The Wicker Man was very, very different to what I first saw. I didn't see it till I was probably 15, 16 years old. I think it was on Movie Drome. Alex Cox introduced it, and I'd been waiting to see it for years. I'd read about it in Danny Peary's cult movies book as well. I don't know what I imagined. I wish I could remember what I thought it was going to be. I certainly didn't have a sense of disappointment. It had so much going on in it. So is this a first-rate film, or is this one of the world's great B-movies? I think it's both good and bad simultaneously. I mean, there are moments in it which I think are just ravishingly beautiful and extraordinarily powerful and haunting and distinctive. And then all of a sudden it just crashes into something of banality. But there's something about that that contributes to it. You get the sense it was kind of made on the hoof, pretty much. There's something very rushed about it and sketchy about it. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the film is so memorable. It kind of crashes around a bit, lumbers around a bit. And sometimes what you see is at odds with what you hear. The music, which is one of the most memorable and pungent things about it, is sometimes doing something very different from what you're seeing. It feels slightly thrown together, which I like. When you say there are moments that are beautiful and poetic and resonant, what are those moments for you? What are some examples? The way the film begins with this sense that there's this policeman in a seaplane arriving at some island. I think that's just very powerful. And the music, I think, there's something that's both familiar and strange about it. Isn't that so often the case with what makes a film that makes you feel anxious is that it is at the same time both familiar and strange. It sets that up beautifully. The final scene, of course, would be remembered by anyone who's ever seen it. 
The first thing I think of when I think of the film is actually the hobby horse scene where Edward Woodward is kind of walking around. I think it's Kakubri, I'm not sure, but he's looking up the ginnels and the alleys and he sees the horse at the other side. There's this sort of strange chase thing that happens, which is, again, familiar and frightening. What about you, Robin? Those little scenes like, for instance, the placing of the frog in the mouth. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the the moment of the breastfeeding in, in the deconsecrated church, in the remnants of the church. And, you know, even the, when you know the full story of the fact that they were making it on, on the cusp of winter. And so when you see all those pregnant women walking through it, it it's people desperately moving trees with painted on blossom. I think those things, that otherworldly, those uncanny moments, normally the lead character in a film, even if they're a bad guy, you end up empathising. Edward Woodward you never ultimately empathise, or I don't feel you ever empathise with him. I didn't. I take a different view, actually. I find him a figure of pathos. I never did, and I watched it again yesterday, and I found myself quite moved by him, particularly in the last scene. But then, obviously, I'm in the business of people dying extravagantly out of faithfulness to Christ, so there's a kind of precedent for me with that. I almost kind of willed him onto the pyre in the past. There's something, isn't there, about flinty Calvinism that is mm-hmm. unattractive, although, of course, actually it's much more complex than that. I admire his outrage, the fact that this child has gone missing. I admire his sort of dedication to uncovering the truth of what's happened. And I think the pathos perhaps really hinges on that moment of realisation at the end, when he thinks he's been steering events, but actually finds out that he is the victim of a bigger play that he didn't see. It makes me think of films like Hereditary and Midsummer. That, I always think, is a brilliant moment. That point where you ultimately realise that someone who believed they were in charge, that loss of control is something that will hit you so hard in the stomach, that horror. One of the other things I read about this film was that it was a piece of moral philosophy and a plea for tolerance, and that it's about the stark differences between two belief systems. I'm not sure it's a film which makes a convincing plea for tolerance, really. But if anything, I think it's about intolerance, isn't it? It's about two cultures completely not understanding each other. And you get this incredible crash. You have Sergeant Howie with absolutely firm as granite in his convictions, comes across a world and a system of belief that he simply doesn't recognise. Whereas for the islanders, what they're looking for is something to make their crops grow again. You know, what does... How he do when he when he encounters them at their shenanigans? I mean, he's just outraged by it. He has kind of one register, doesn't he, which is outrage. He confronts the schoolmistress over her failure to introduce any of the children to Christ. I think one of the most powerful things in the film is the kind of guilelessness with which the Summer Islanders participate in hoodwinking the cop, and also when challenged and when questioned, happily volunteer that they do think that people don't die but are transformed into hares and scamper around the fields in the spring. And I think that's cleverly done isn't it? Because you don't get the sense that this is a sinister conspiratorial coven. It's just a community of people who march to a very different beat. And that's one of the reasons I think why the horror, if that's the right word, works. It's because they are innocent of the terrible death or innocent of the knowledge of the terrible death they're going to inflict on this chap who doesn't know what's coming. When you mentioned before flinty Calvinism, I think that's the interesting thing. And the time that it came out, not long after these kind of, you know, the ideals, and generally they were ideals and not realities of, of free love, every time that he sees flesh desire, gives you that form of Christianity, that form of quite fundamentalist religion, which says that any desire, any of our animal needs or wants is ultimately something that is disgusting and must be quashed. And I think that's why, as you said also, they're not evil, the islanders, they're doing what must be done. 
underneath it all, their life is an existence that is so much more in tune with the reality of nature and the possibilities of nature. But also the failures of nature, because the reason mm. he's there is because their crops have failed, haven't they? The best horror films or imaginative fiction films, whatever you, of this kind, the best folk horror films are dealing with a certain sensibility in humanity, which is unquantifiable, which is a relationship sometimes to the grass or the flowers or whatever it might be, which, yes, yeah. we might be able to understand them from the perspective of science, but there is still a reaction when we see the roses behind you, whatever it might be, there is a reaction which is not quantifiable. And related to that is, I think, the other thing that the sergeant represents is order. That's a very powerful tension in the film, isn't it? He comes in a place he's never been before, but so convinced of the rightness of what he represents and so convinced of his authority to do so that it doesn't occur for him for a second that he might have to fight his corner. The dynamics are completely different on Summer Isle, aren't they? When they're much more tied in, not to a kind of project which is about being preempted over nature, having dominion over nature, but very much of being conscious of being part of it and the kind of cycle of birth and death and regeneration, which is not something that Christianity, particularly in its kind of northern Protestant forms, those two things are very much in tension. It's also very colonial. We have come with our Bible. We want these things from you. No level of understanding. When you when you see us, you know, a, a, around the world, some of the terrible crimes, some of the terrible things that we've committed by never managing to, or, or never even attempting to understand quite often indigenous people. Watching it again the other night, I thought, ah, that's another thing it has in it as well. It's kind mm. of about colonial. It's a, about, yeah. I have the truth. This is the truth. Whatever you may say, there is no truth in it because I have the truth. It's slightly complex, that, isn't it? But I mean, I think you're absolutely right, I think. And he does have, not for a second does he doubt, that he represents something to which they should all cleave, the authority of which is unquestioned. But the interesting one is Lord Sumrall, isn't he? Because Lord Sumrall clearly is kind of recognisable, not just as an islander, but as someone who has a life beyond the island is part of the structures of authority. He's the JP. Do you remember he has to go to him mm -hmm. to ask for permission to exhume the body of Rowan Morrison? So Lord Summerall is a particularly complex figure, isn't he? That on the one hand, he kind of sits comfortably in a recognisable world. The sergeant addresses him as my lord, you know, aware of their kind of relative places in a social structure. The, the tension which really struck me about it is the difference between mainland and island. But there is something about the way islanders as kind of defined communities by the nature of being an island, encounter someone who comes from a mainland. I think that's a very interesting tension. It occurred to me, again, watching it yesterday, one thing I hadn't realised before is that it takes a week to get there. So we're not talking about Mull. We're talking really about somewhere like St Kilda. I mean, even more than that. It's very distant, isn't it? It's not somewhere that's readily accessible, even though you kind of recognise the architecture and the, the language. I don't know if you know Whittle or Galloway well, Robin, I do know it well. It would go there for most years. One of my favourite things there is the way you stumble across prehistoric sites. I'm thinking of drum trodden, the stones there and the cup and ring decorations there. And this sense that they're Neolithic is certainly two to three thousand years BCE. So we're talking a very long time ago indeed. But they're extraordinarily powerful places. And there is a magic to Whithorn in particular and the, the Rins of Galloway, I think, where you can quite imagine how if there, if time were a membrane, that it could be stretched very, very thin in those places. Something of the strangeness and the beauty of that part of the world imparts itself to the film. I mean, you know, St Ninian's Cave, very familiar spot, and then up on the cliffs where the Wicker Man actually stood. There's a magic about it. Something to do with the quality of light, perhaps, I don't know. But that's in the film too. Yeah, I, it's interesting you say that, going a bit further north, but that bit of, again, returning to the intangible, 
and that sensation of uh, where I the, the last proper trip I had before lockdown was I was up in Stornoway doing a gig in Stornoway and I went off I was fortunately taken for a little drive and I went to the Stone Circle which is only about half an hour away from Stornoway and it is it's older than Stonehenge and you're right and, and it, I was very lucky it was the only sunny day they had uh, in the whole of February so beautiful and that moment touching the rock that moment of placing your hand on it, that moment that you keep stepping back and you keep seeing different patterns and shapes yeah. and that connection that you feel with whoever it was, whatever group of humans. It is that bit which is what we cannot place in an equation is the strange human sensation. It doesn't mean, yeah. you know, it doesn't mean that it, it then opens us up to dragons and ghosts, whatever it might be, but it nevertheless is a beautiful, intangible moment of connection. The, the other thing about it I find quite powerful is that I, I sense that these marks are not random. Well, they, they're not random, but we don't know the code. We don't know what they're trying to tell us, if indeed they're trying to tell us something we recognise at all. And I think that's something which is very powerful in this film too. You have the policeman who's looking at a situation and a, a thing he thinks is familiar, not getting it, all of a sudden beginning to see patterns in their behaviour which don't make sense, but he doesn't understand what it means. And that's another source, I think, of the tension, which is just such a powerful feature in the movie. What about the legacy of The Wicker Man? I mean, the League of Gentlemen, certainly, it was an influence on them. I mean, there's a few moments in the candy shop where I was like, you know, local things for local people. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the moment we're going through a very interesting time where the Wicker Man is this real touchstone for people who've become tremendously confused by what goes on in our civilization and our politics, but may well not have a god, a traditional god. It's been a very useful connection for a lot of people with a myriad number of ideas about different ways of working out how you deal with being human. I think it also stands in a very interesting tradition, which is of the kind of gothic horror, the pan-horror stories that came out in multiple volumes in the 1970s, Tales of the Unexpected, Anglia TV series, based on the Roald Dahl stories, which again are beautifully written, very, very taut and tight, well-constructed short stories that have this, uh, usually this kind of switching of the turn that uh, makes you realise that the world that you you thought you knew you don't know anymore the interesting i have the faint echo of it i don't know if you're watching the reruns of alan bennett's talking heads at the moment there's just a faint echo of it there it's half an hour it's short form it's very simple and direct but all of a sudden you're looking at people who you think you know and suddenly they say something or a story is revealed that realize that you don't know them at all well, I, th I think that's such. That's one of the hardest things of being human is working out the fact that we are. The Philippa Perry, the, the wonderful therapist Philippa Perry, one of my first conversations with her, she said the problem with being human is we judge everyone else from their exterior and ourselves from the interior. And very often we're so ashamed of what our interior is that what we project and what everyone believes we are and what we believe our friend. And I think that's often that's what horror is dealing with. Thank you to Richard Coles and Robin Ince, and of course to Lee. You can watch the entire one-hour event on our YouTube channel or on the website wigtownbookfestival.com. And that's it for this week. Hope we haven't left you too scared. Look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. <laughs>